0: I was born in Tarshiha, this is the name of the village. My father was a musician, composer, educator, oud player, and uh, I was surrounded by a family of uh, musicians. The most important thing is that I grew up in in this kind of environment. It influenced me a great deal. I was exposed at early childhood to the best of traditional Arab music. And my father, with his diversity and versatility in music, of course, exposed me to music from different parts of the world, including Western classical and uh, you know, Indian music, Persian, uh, and many others. So I grew up uh, in this environment of multifaceted musical scene. At the age of uh, three, I started to play on the oud. And at the age of five and a half, I joined the Conservatory of Classical Music in the city of Haifa, where I learned on the violin. And I grew up with this duality of playing on the oud and the violin. And this duality kept uh, haunting me <laughs> throughout my <laughs> life because, you know, I compose in, in Arabic styles and Western styles and do many things in various traditions.
1: That was violinist, oud player, and 1994 National Heritage Fellow, Simone Shaheen. Welcome to Artworks, the program that goes behind the scenes with some of the nation's great artists to explore how art works. I'm your host, Josephine Reed. Simone Shaheen is one of the great Arab musicians of his generation. Taking his background in both Arab and Western music as his starting point, Shaheen dazzles listeners with his extraordinary blending of the two. A Palestinian born in a small Galilean village, Shaheen studied violin in Haifa and music and Arab culture in Tel Aviv before emigrating to the United States. Here he completed a master's in music performance and another in music education. His goal, to bring Arab music to Western ears and to move it from the cabaret to the concert hall. A creative force who moves effortlessly from traditional Arab music to jazz and Western classical styles, Simone Shaheen brings them together with melodic ingenuity and unparalleled musicality, earning international recognition as a virtuoso on both the violin and the oud. I spoke with Simone Shaheen recently and began our conversation by asking him to describe one of his instruments.
0: The oud is the predecessor of the Western European lute. It has a kind of half pear shaped structure with the top that we call in Arabic the face. It has an open fingerboard as opposed to the fingerboards on the guitars or the lute that has frets. And with the, the fact that we have this open fingerboard allows us to perform a quality in Arab music that we call microtonality. Microtonality is the one great aspect or component that defines Arabic music. And microtones are the sounds that Western ear might have difficulty listening to it because it's not trained to to hear it. And the Oud has also uh, five double strings and one bass. We use the plactrum that is made of an animal horn to uh, strum on the strings. And I would say it has this round, warm, very well-projected sound.
1: Okay, now here's a question. I was really intrigued by something you said, and that is for the Western ear, we might not be trained to hear it. Do you think different cultures are taught to hear differently?
0: It's a matter of exposing the ear to it. I don't think it's a cultural thing. For example, you know, in 1996, I started something called the Arabic Music Retreat in uh, Mount Holyoke College in Massachusetts. Yeah. And prior to that, I have been touring and performing and doing residencies and workshops about Arabic music because the main purpose was to move Arab music from the cabaret scene to the concert halls and the performing arts centers and the universities. And in a way, I succeeded. So now we have a trend of Arabic music all over the United States just by the mere practice of the participation at the music retreat and the exposure. I mean, I remember playing to 12 people in 1981 in New York at the Alternative Museum, a concert that was produced by the World Music Institute. And the same thing last year we performed with the World Music Institute at Town Hall. And it was filled, and we had half of that amount of people outside who couldn't enter. So I think it shows a progress of the exposure to Arab music and interest by American musicians and American listeners as well to Arab music. So it's not difficult to expose them to Arab music. Of course, it requires training and commitment to learn the music performance, and listening to microtones as well.
1: Arab music uses melodic modes called maqams. Can you explain what that is? It's different than a scale.
0: Yes. The maqam is a system. Just look at it as a scale of eight notes and try to approach it as if we play eight notes on the piano, we can get major scale, or minor scale these are the only two options but imagine that we invent another key that is red between the white and the black key on the piano and if you press on it it gives you the mid sound that is between the white and the black so this would be considered a new sound that doesn't exist on the piano but hypothetically if we have it uh, it will create the microtone or if you want to be more general, quarter tone. The mere fact that we have those microtones in our scales, then it opens the possibility for infinite amount of melodies, abundance amount of melodies, that defines Arab music, if you will. And this is why our music is melodically area-oriented, it moves horizontally, as opposed to the system that exists in Western classical music, which is based on harmony. Since melodically it's restricted, as I said before, restricted to minor and major scales, then what enriches this music is the structure that we call harmony. It gives it this richness and emotional expression. While in Arabic music, this emotional expression doesn't need any harmony. It comes out from the richness of the melody itself.
1: I listened to an excerpt of a concert, you and Michel Merhi. Am I saying his name correctly?
0: Yeah, yeah, Merhij.
1: Merhij. And he plays the rock. And it sounded like you two were having a musical conversation back and forth. Uh,
0: I think you're referring to improvisation, duet improvisation. Yes. Yeah, the word is req, which means the Arabic tambourine. And in many of our concerts, I always leave some time, like 10 minutes, for an improvisation. And sometimes we do it as what we call a metric improvisation on the oud and the riq, which is the tambourine. It's an improvisation. I choose the maqam or the Arabic scale at the moment before we start playing. And I choose the metric or the rhythmic mode, the rhythmic pattern at the same time. I just look at Michel and I tell him, blah, 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 and he knows. And in certain sections of the improvisation, I create what you call the call and response, meaning that Mm -hmm. I start to play a phrase maybe of four measures and he responds to me with four measures. And we go down in the measures, two, one, half a measure, and it becomes very kind of... uh, interesting and exciting. It shows the, the understanding, the, the language uh, that we understand very well, based on, of course, the practice, the knowledge, and the amount of uh, repertoire we have in our mind. So we read each other very well as we play.
1: Duality seems to play a big part in your life. You grew up listening to Western music, playing the violin, and listening to Arab music, playing the oud. You come to the United States to go to graduate school. You study performing art and music education.
0: Correct. Uh, I attended Manhattan School of Music, performance on the violin. And then last year of my Manhattan school, it was the same year I started Columbia University music education, and I graduated there in uh, 1985. So beside being a performer and studying performance, it was important to do the music education because it has been and still big part of my musical uh, trip, if you will. And a big part of my career is about education, is about educating Arab musicians, American musicians. It's about bringing Arab music and Arab culture as an experience to universities, colleges, even schools like what I did a few months ago in uh, in Seattle when I was hosted by the University of Washington, to perform there. But together with the performance, we uh, organized uh, workshops. Uh, It was kind of residency that included going to schools, elementary, middle, and high schools, and do programs about Arab music and Arab culture. So this is a big part of it, and music education is definitely one big aspect of my career.
1: You also began to combine traditional Arab music with both jazz and classical influences. What led you to do that?
0: I was doing this when I was a little kid back home in Palestine. And, you know, I, I started this conversation by talking about the multifaceted traditions, musical traditions that I was exposed to. So being exposed to Western classical music, Arabic traditional music, and music of West Africa, I was very much in love with South American music, especially Brazilian music. And, of course, without saying Indian, Persian, uh, Turkish, you know, Eastern European music, I really, I grew up in this environment, knowing all these musics. So coming to America in 1980 uh, wasn't a big surprise for me. In fact, I was one of those who really promoted the idea of the cross-cultural music attempts. And in 1992-93, I started a group called Cantara, which means arches or arch. And this group was made of musicians from various nationalities, including France, Lebanon, uh, Egypt, uh, America, Venezuela. And those musicians were involved heavily in American jazz or European jazz. But at the same time, they have the, the ability and the openness to learn about other traditions, including Arabic music. And since they were uh, very sensitive to this and willing to do it, those were the musicians who I started to work with. And little by little, we developed a repertoire which I composed very much. And uh, we came up with really fantastic recording uh, titled Blue Flame that, in a way or another, it started to define the idea of cross-cultural music and what we call in, Amer- in, in New York fusion music.
1: Well, in fact, we're going to hear a cut from Blue Flame. And Simone, I want you to make the choice about what we should listen to.
0: I think uh, Dance Mediterranean will be a great example of me playing on the violin, uh, showing both the versatility of uh, playing and also the Arabic maqam infused with the Western rhythms and orchestration, if you will. In a way that is kind of uh, natural, where the the instruments, they meet and they feel organically blending together very well. And it's a matter of, again, knowing the music, understanding orchestration, and bringing the, the best of the sonorities of the instruments.
1: Okay, here's Dance Mediterranean. Beautiful. Thank you. How is it listening to that again?
0: Each time I listen to it, I get surprised. <laughs>
1: <laughs> That's wonderful. Let me ask you this, Simon. When we heard you playing the violin, I mean, mm-hmm. just so extraordinarily, what's different for you? What What do you express in the violin that you don't express in the oud and vice versa?
0: This is a very tough question, Joe. I mean, how could I answer this? I don't know. Huh? <laughs> <laughs> You know, the oud is a string but plucked instrument. So you want to think about the right hand with the plectrum picking on the strings and producing sound. So uh, you can think of the, the mandolin, the guitar, classical, flamenco. So this is one sound, right? On the violin, you have the bow and its continuous sound. So each has definitely has its own characteristics and its own way of expressions. Now, those expressions, are they different? I wouldn't go that far. I wouldn't say that they are different. But the means in which you can create this emotional drive and expression are different, but the the result should be in a way similar.
1: You also have another ensemble, the Near Eastern Music Ensemble.
0: Yeah, that's correct. 1982. To 83, the early 83, this is when we formed this group together. And I was lucky to meet with musicians from various parts of the Middle East who lived in New York and out of New York. So I brought them together. And in order to reach out, in order to perform on high quality and perform our music, the traditional Arabic music at its best, it was necessarily not only perform as a solo or talk about the music, but create an ensemble that brings the extensive repertoire we have in Arab traditional music, including both vocal and instrumental. So, therefore, the sound of the ensemble, which was made of seven musicians, including one singer, was necessary in order to cover all facets of Arab music. And this way, we started to carry this ensemble and go perform in museums, performing art centres. You know, whenever we had uh, residences at universities, the ensemble always has been involved, and still. And this was one way of exposing Americans to uh, Arab music. So this was a necessary and a must in order to perform the the complete sound in Arab music.
1: Well, you said part of your mission was moving Arab music from the cabaret into the concert halls. And indeed, you've played in many notable concert halls, including the Kennedy Center and Carnegie Hall. What was that like right. for you when you went to Carnegie Hall and played?
0: It was beautiful. <laughs> it was great. <laughs> Not only that you're performing in one of the greatest uh, music halls in the world, but... It gives prestige. It uh, it gives the ensemble, the music we perform, a great exposure. And performing in such hall, it's an experience. It's you are performing in a hall that has almost uh, one of the greatest acoustics in the world. Uh, performing in a hall where some of the greatest audiences come to listen to this music, and it is history in the making. So this was a great step in the. I would say, in the right direction.
1: In the meanwhile, you also became an American citizen, which paradoxically allowed you to then travel to Arab countries and play your music there.
0: That's true. You know, I lived under Israel. And from our village, Tarshiha to Beirut, where my aunt lived and many other relatives, It's exactly one hour and a half drive with the car. And, you know, it took me a long voyage, if you will, to come to New York and obtain the citizenship and obtain my American passport in order to finally travel to Beirut and meet with my relatives and people that I knew. Otherwise, it would have been impossible to do. And, you know, also the importance of such thing is to visit in the Arab countries, to visit the countries that my tradition and my culture and my background is part of it, to see and to be part of Arab music in the making, a part of the artistic scene, the alive scene. So this was very important. And, you know, I remember when I was four and five years old, when I was performing on the oud and the violin I remember people were saying to my father in front of me imagine that this kid could have been in Beirut or Cairo performing and it has been ringing in my ear constantly that when I went to visit in Beirut the first time which is I would say the beginning of the 90s it was a kind of a dream that came through and was really fantastic to be a part of this scene and now it's you know it 's normal that I go to the, the Arab countries on a tour annually performing last year. I was the first uh, musicians to perform publicly in Saudi Arabia because public performances are not allowed by you know people coming from the outside, so this was a breakthrough. And uh, it gives me a great deal of satisfaction.
1: You also began the annual Arab Festival of the Arts, which is a two-day festival in New York City. When and how did that happen?
0: Uh, we started it in 1994. This was the first time. Again, all these activities, including the Arab Arts Festival, was a, a part of the many, many events or projects that together it brought visibility and put Arab music and tradition on the map. And they allowed the Americans to come and participate and celebrate uh, Arab tradition, Arab music, and it's really at its best. I'm not saying this with arrogance, with utmost humility, but it was because I can judge it and I have the ability to judge it. And we really, we created fantastic projects and programs. So this was a part of the scene that really pushed Arab music and tradition to the mainstream, not necessarily the very big mainstream. Uh, we still fall in the cracks, but they created more exposure. And that
1: same year, you received the National Heritage Fellowship Award from the NEA, of all places. <laughs>
0: it was uh, good to receive it it was another one element that probably gave another push to uh, our music to my work to the the ensembles i work with to the projects throughout america the recognition is important i uh, was thrilled to have it and i i think perhaps this was part of recognizing the uh, many projects music projects we work on throughout the years i have been putting adding increments uh, on top of each other in order to create the the larger scene and you know what will happen i don't know but uh, this is my duty and i keep doing it
1: many thanks simone i really appreciate you taking the time and joining us
0: you are welcome thank you
1: that was violinist, oud player, and 1994 National Heritage Fellow, Simone Shaheen. You've been listening to artworks produced at the National Endowment for the Arts. Adam Campy is the musical supervisor. Excerpts from Dance Mediterranean, Olive Harvest, and Waving Sands, performed by Simone Shaheen and Quantra, composed by Simone Shaheen from the CD Blue Flame. The Artworks podcast is posted every Thursday at arts.gov. And now you can subscribe to Artworks at iTunes U. Just click on the iTunes link on our podcast page. Next week, he started singing at the age of 30. But since then, he's performed with some of the country's great opera companies. Meet Morris Robinson. To find out how art works in communities across the country, keep checking the Artworks blog or follow us at NEA Arts on Twitter. And don't forget, Friday, September 23rd, the 2011 National Heritage Fellows perform live at the NEA National Heritage Concert. It's at 8 p.m. at the Music Center at Strathmore in Bethesda, Maryland. But if you can't make it, don't worry. We're webcasting it live. For more information about this free concert and the live webcast. Go to arts.gov and click on National Heritage Fellowships. For the National Endowment for the Arts, I'm Josephine Reed. Thanks for listening.